calmness, I guess, to the otherwise fairly chaotic experience of being an entrepreneur because you get to see like, oh, we dealt with this problem, we encountered this, it wasn't this way, but like, just kind of keep going and it will work out. And so I try to take a lot of those things and lessons learned and incorporate them. Today, I'm here with Ben Bordak, co-founder and CEO of April. It is an AI-driven embedded tax software company helping businesses enhance and improve tax filing for their customers. Thank you very much for being here, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Before we get into April and what it does, I would love to kind of drill into your background slightly. How did you get the entrepreneurial bug in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm uh, the child of two uh, attorneys, Columbia Law educated attorneys, and I uh, thought my whole life I was uh, going to be a, a lawyer as well. I thought that was kind of my uh, calling and, and started in, uh, in university where I was at at NYU a little more than a decade ago and just happened into this uh, university professor's class. I actually wasn't even technically enrolled in the class. I was auditing the class just because I was curious what it was. It was called Ready, Fire, Aim. And it was taught by a professor and venture capitalist, Larry Lenahan. And, and Larry was one of the founders of First More Capital, well-known uh, venture capital fund here in the city, in New York City, that's backed, you know, Shopify and, and StubHub and Pinterest and some great firms. And the whole point of the class was like, don't write a business plan, you know, look at the market, ship something, write some code, experiment, learn. And the, the concept behind the class was kind of nifty if you... One, so there were a bunch of teams that would enter different competitions, uh, different ideas, and if he won, he would invest his salary in the business. His, his salary was an astounding twelve thousand five hundred dollars. Um, <laughs> so it was somewhat symbolic, although you know at that point that was enough money to pay uh, AWS and maybe incorporate and, and kind of get going. And so actually, through auditing the class, we had entered an idea for marketing automation, and it uh, ended up winning. And we worked on it for uh, about two and a half, three years, raised institutional money and had gotten pretty far along. And I think at some point uh, just recognized that we had made a lot of mistakes and actually turned down more institutional money, which hindsight may have been 2020 on that one, like if we should have kept going. But I think my partners and I just felt like, you know, we wanted to learn and we felt like rather than taking more of people's money, the right thing to do at that point was kind of pause. And and so I ended up at, at Deloitte Consulting uh, where I sort of started my my professional career if you like, and ended up becoming the go-to person at the firm uh, for fintech and used the entrepreneurial background that I had in order to help very large financial services companies like Citi and AIG and American Express and others innovate and understand how they could apply new technologies, new concepts to their business, incorporate what they were seeing in the startup ecosystem, figure out how to solve real business problems that they had. And so I did that uh, for a couple of years. And so I got to kind of see on the ground floor startup, got that entrepreneurial bug and then kind of went the other way and saw the largest businesses you could see at kind of the highest level and got to really cut my teeth on large US global financial services and both the good and the bad and, and sort of understanding what the limitations are and why things operated the way they worked, why decision makers and regulations and different industries, whether it was in PNC insurance or asset management ended up forming uh, the way that they did. And after a number of years, like realized what I actually love is technology more than anything else. And I was too far from the technology. And so I wanted to get closer to the tech, but wasn't ready yet to be an entrepreneur again. 
ended up at a really unique place called Teammate. Teammate is a, a venture fund that inc primarily incubates companies at the intersection of cyber, fintech, and health tech. And so working on really deep problems at the intersection of complex regulatory environments, new and innovative technologies, and real world meaningful business applications. And that to me is where I thrive and how I want to spend my time. And I, I opened the US office. I helped the firm grow to a billion dollars under management. I helped incubate and sell a couple of companies. One that you know is, is fairly well known is a company called Curve that pioneered multi-party computation, which is the way that now most cryptocurrency and digital assets are stored at the enterprise level because you have this problem of this private key that everyone got excited about. It was like, your keys, your crypto. The problem is when you're an enterprise, that doesn't work so well because if the employee leaves or loses the key, you lost funds for customer funds. And so the novelty there was how do you secure cryptocurrency, financial asset? How do you do that in a world where it's it's one to many? So you've got one key, but you've got many parties and you have to assure it. You have to know that it's insured. You have to be able to back it up. And so multi-party compute became a cryptographic solution to this business problem and helped build that team and, and scale the company up. And then we ultimately sold it to PayPal and it formed uh, their crypto unit. And so kind of got to do a bunch of these different projects, did another one around uh, industrial security, with a company called Clarity, and another one uh, with a company called Visible Risk in the cyber risk assessment space that we sold to Bitsight and Moody's. And basically after doing that for a couple of years, got my fix and said, like, I've kind of seen this rodeo now a couple of times and I'm ready to be an entrepreneur again. And so that's kind of, you know, the last couple of years leading uh, up to April. Do you think, because it's, it's a very interesting kind of, you started jumping in the deep end, right? And a bit of a sliding doors moment going into a VC's class. Do you think that you would have done the first startup if you hadn't gone into that class or you decided not to not to join it? Yeah, I don't think I would have done it if it wasn't for that class because it wasn't something being raised by two lawyers in New York. You know, most people go into finance or law or consulting or, or some sort of more traditional major industry that we have here, real estate. And I've always liked the intellectual challenge. And so that's why I thought like law or investment banking, credit research would, would kind of be my calling. And there wasn't really much of a startup ecosystem here at the time, even this was very much like a Silicon Valley, West Coast kind of deal. And, you know, I got started actually in New York when the, maybe it wasn't the first wave of startups, because that was probably like the ad tech stuff that really started like mid to early 2000s, but this was, you know, back in 2010, 11, and it was, you had a, you know, you had a you had like app nexus and um, double click and some of these, you know, bigger ad tech companies, Tumblr was here. So as you had this media tech stuff, but you didn't really have FinTech, marketing tech, a lot of the stuff that has since developed. And, you know, now New York is this thriving city. And so I think I was actually in the first WeWork location that we had in New oh, York. Oh, really? So, you know, it was very much like, you know, attracting people. It was, it was very much like a rebellious thing to leave. And I got to, to leave industry and not be, it was people that had either already had their career and this was their second career or like had the itch or, you know, fizzled out from corporate life in New York. And, you know, now it's mainstream. You have many startups here. People are working at all kinds of late stage companies, the mega caps like Meta and Google have opened up here, but it wasn't really the case then. I think at that time, maybe Facebook had a relatively small office some people were going to work there but it was you know wasn't you know nearly the the industry that it is today and so for me it was kind of weird to have that experience while i was in university but it, it very much ended up informing like the way that i viewed 
when I went on to Deloitte and then teammate and what I was doing, I was far more intentional because I had had that experience. I'm just interested to kind of understand, you've mentioned them twice now, your parents, but if they're from a kind of the, the lawyer kind of a professional background, how they thought about their son, who presumably they thought were going straight into something similar, kind of going down a slightly different path. Was there any fear about, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg dropping out of a top tier university to pursue this? Yeah, I tried dropping out a couple of times and my parents were not uh, were not happy about it. And I think <laughs> they were right. I think it was worth crazy years parallel tracking university and a startup. I was literally going from like, you know, an exam, take an Uber to go pitch someone, take a subway back, go here, go get some work done. It was a pretty crazy time in, in life, but I think probably the time you want to you want to experience that. And I think in the beginning, they were a little bit sort of like, what is this? And, or maybe this is like a bug that Ben has to itch or whatever. But then I think they saw my passion for it and how seriously I took it. And I did ultimately end up at Deloitte for a period of time. So I think they were relieved that I, I kind of got that big corporate experience. And I really benefited from that. I know people have different things to say about consulting and some of the big firms, but it was an amazing compliment to my startup experience. And I really appreciated my time there. I got to see a lot and learn from some great business people and, you know, just kind of realized at some point, like, this isn't my calling is to be a career consultant, but, you know, I'm happy that I had that experience. What was kind of the, the, the most surprising thing about transitioning from kind of a small startup into, into a consulting side of things? Was it seeing, getting access to businesses that were already successful and seeing how it's done or what were you most interested in? What, what got you out of bed every day? Well, I think... There was two things that were surprising, I think, pleasantly so. The first is that Deloitte was, is a gigantic organization, one of the largest professional organizations in the world, tens of billions of dollars of revenue. But actually, you're able to kind of operate, depending on what group you're in, in the consulting firm. Again, this was a number of years ago, but it, it was, I want to say more startup vibe. That's probably not the right way to describe it. You did have a smaller team that you'd end up working with, with a couple of partners and managers that would be on these projects. And some people were on or practitioners were on, you know, probably projects with hundreds of people. I tended to be on these small strategy projects. So, and I was on a, a P&L with a very specific set of senior partners. And so I had a lot more latitude with what I could do. So I kind of found my niche there, which was great and kind of had the ability to forge my own path. So I think this was kind of fun to be able to see like, oh, you don't necessarily have to be a cog in the wheel, maybe from a career perspective, that is kind of how it nets out. But at least from a work perspective, I was able to get exposure to the work that I wanted you have to work at it, but I got to see some, I started a venture capital fund for a mid-sized property casualty insurer. I did M&A exploration with the chairman of a Fortune 100 company. I mean, I got to do some things, you know, in my early 20s that like most people may not, you know, ever get to do in their career. So I think that was really fortuitous. And then the other side of it was seeing big business, because I think when you're outside the walls, maybe you think that all of these things are like incredibly well run and nobody has problems. Yeah. And and then you see it on the inside as a consultant and like, you're like, oh dear Lord, like, you know, <laughs> client A can't even figure out like what they pay their people or doesn't know how many people they have. Like you get exposed to all kinds of issues, especially when you've got big global conglomerates. And I think that was kind of eye opening to just, you should have this permission to go and build stuff because it's not that anybody else really has it all figured out or is perfect. And being in business is actually like more of a some kind of continuum of delivering a great service at a great price and making customers happy, but also doing it in the face of like lots of complexity, which, you know, will vary by the business. But I think this past year has showed us that 
there's going to be complex stuff that happens in the world and great leaders are going to find ways to work with their teams and customers and investors to work through those things. So I kind of enjoyed both those aspects of being able to see that. And yes, yeah, seeing how professionals, you know, at the highest level run their business. I mean, that's great exposure, of course. I kind of have a theory about entrepreneurs, not all entrepreneurs, but the vast majority where they, they kind of need to see an entrepreneur and experience them close up to kind of pull them through the veil slightly to give them the confidence to be able to go and do it themselves. There's also the, the, the second thing, more of an emboldening thing where you can get, you see a big business and you think, holy crap, they don't know what they're doing. Like, yeah, this emboldens me to be able to, it sounds as though you've had both of those experiences. And is, was it, was it that kind of th those two together that kind of drove you back towards entrepreneurship or anything else? Yeah, I think one of the mentors from from teammate that I have, our, our executive uh, chairman or, or managing partner, Yuval, who founded three businesses, also to Cisco, Yuval Shahar, and he, he said, entrepreneurs aren't entrepreneurs, or I'm paraphrasing, entrepreneurs aren't entrepreneurs because they want to be, it's because they can't not be. And so I think like once yeah. you kind of have that itch of, you want the intellectual challenge, you want to have the impact, you want to build something, you enjoy creating and building something from nothing. Yeah. And I realized that that's just the three things together is just what I find fulfillment in. And I found like in consulting, you have the intellectual challenge, but you're not building. And in yes. other jobs you might be building, but you don't have the intellectual challenge or you're not building something from nothing. And so I think Mark Andreessen put it nicely recently when he said that entrepreneurs can surprise themselves about how they can reorganize the world around themselves. And so I think that that is, you know, part of the, the game and, and enjoyment of, you know, what I find a lot of satisfaction in and you know just brings a new challenge every single day the the, comp the competitive element as well uh, i always find to be something interesting as well because again you can be sheltered from that slightly in big organizations now there's definitely competitive elements but it's not the you talked about being away from the technology slightly and i think with being in a startup you're kind of right back on the competitive yeah it's more um, it's more intimate i mean i guess it varies by industry right like sometimes you're in a small space like i remember at Deloitte when you know, us and McKinsey or BCG would go back, but you didn't feel it because you didn't know the people. And it was like, okay, they won that deal, but you won this. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it doesn't really matter so much. I think when you're in these smaller sub markets, yeah, it can be, uh, it can be quite competitive. Intimacy is right. Like a uh, sport. I like the, the intimate phrase. That's, that's nice. It's, it's yeah, you're, you're, you're closer to it, but there are less people and you know them all. So it's, if you win or you're, if you lose, you kind of feel it. Feel it harder. Yeah, I'll double down on or, or pick back up what you said about seeing entrepreneurs up close. And I think that's something also that teammate afforded me a really unique opportunity because a lot of the partners there had built great companies. One of the ones that I incubated April with is a guy named Vernon who co-founded and built eToro.com. Massive company now, hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars in revenue, trading brokerages in dozens of countries. And so you get to see these people. We have other investors that have led our rounds, founded Acorns and Betterment, Jeff and Eli, and, and being able to be around these people and get their wisdom, but also see the way that they reflect on their journey just adds a sort of sense of like calmness, I guess, to the otherwise fairly chaotic experience of being an entrepreneur. Cause you get to see like, oh, we dealt with this problem. We encountered this, it wasn't this way, but like just kind of keep going and it will work out. And so try to take a lot of those things and lessons learned and incorporate them. Um, I'd like to kind of move on to, to April if I, if I can. Where did the idea come from? The idea honestly came from a concerted effort of brainstorming around 
what does the American consumer need? And we looked at, at the market here and said, there's a lot of great digital solutions. There are niches that are not well served. I think there's new solutions that are going to be built that are based on software and based on data. And the future needs to be personalization where we have a really good vertical experience and a user can come in and they can be served holistically, whether that's through credit, banking, taxes, accounting, investing, savings. Doesn't Maybe they're not going to have one super app, but they're certainly going to be doing a lot of their finances in a couple of concentrated places that I think serve them much better than they do today. Right now, we kind of have these digital storefronts where you come in and you get lots of things that are kind of services that I would say are fairly loosely coupled together and don't work all well, all that well together. And when we looked at it, we just, it was very simple. It was like tax is something that affects 170 million Americans, 32, small, 32 million small businesses. It's something that actually is a year round activity because it's happening around us all of the time. And it's completely absent from platforms. It's siloed. It's looked at in reverse and it is not integrated with where we transact. And so our ability as Americans to actually understand what is our tax situation, how is different life events impacting this uh, is very, very limited. So this was one side. And the other side of it is actually understanding what tax is. And in the US market, tax is essentially that complete financial picture where every year I have to document everything about me. And right now that's kind of like a lost activity. And so part of the idea behind April was helping households, families, businesses kind of take this activity that they're doing anyway and leverage it so they can actually get a better visibility onto their financial uh, picture, their different life events, and make sure that they're getting the right advice and offers and services that are best situated to them. You, you mentioned a couple of different areas, investment, kind of banking, all that sort of stuff. I'll posit that the US tax system is the biggest and hairiest of all these problems that needs to be be fixed. Why is it so complicated? Good question. So the short answer is it doesn't have to be, but because of a few factors, this is the system we have here uh, for better or worse. One is that we have a federated system, which means we have taxes at the federal level paying the US government. And then we have about 43 states that have uh, income tax that impacts you know the lion's share of Americans. And those systems don't interoperate particularly well, and they kind of run independently to some extent from one another. And so you're a taxpayer li living in New York, or you know I live in New Jersey, I work in New York, you've got to pay taxes to the federal government, you also have to pay taxes to those respective states, and they don't interoperate. And so you've got to figure that out, you've got to report both of them. So this is one. The second is, the, we talk about the Moore's law of taxes, which is this concept that the US federal law just keeps growing. It's grown 350% over the last three decades. It's now uh, over a dozen million words. And wow, you could argue we should simplify it, but the reality is we're a very diverse country and these things kind of get rolled up at the federal level. Everyone from Florida to Washington, Maine to Hawaii and Alaska, right? Like massive country, very different geographies, economic uh, needs, different uh, socioeconomic preferences. And so all these things kind of get rolled together in our, in our congressional system. And we have an economy that's evolving. We have climate change, we have cryptocurrency. So all these things are getting added and we're not really necessarily taking away all that many things. So that's kind of the, uh, I would say the, you know, the second reason. And the third is a little bit more nuanced, which I'm not sure that it's as intentional. I think it's kind of just what happened, but Taxation in the U.S. is not exactly taxation in the classic sense where it's like, okay, we need money 
to fund government. Therefore, let's take 10% of everybody's earnings or 20% and make sure we fund the government. We've rolled all of these incentives and social welfare and incentives into the system. And we've called the tax. We could do it outside of tax and, you know, just make taxation simple and have this other socioeconomic contract. But the IRS uh, has become the system with which this gets uh, divvied up. And so those are the three factors that have led to this. Yes, very complex and hairy problem, as you described. I didn't ask in the first instance, but if your parents are tax lawyers, then that they're the ones winning from this complexity, right? Or tax no, they're not. They're not. They're not tax. Uh, they're not tax uh, folks. My mom's been retired a long time. She was in real estate. Uh, decided to take care of her four kids, and and my and my dad is in uh, intellectual property. So no, I actually had no particular orientation towards tax. Besides that, it was something that I personally experienced and was constantly trying to optimize, and so. I felt the pain on a, on a personal one and through curiosity sort of came to this uh, challenge. But yes, there is a big industry uh, built around tax. And sometimes we joke is like April is a company that shouldn't necessarily have to be, but obviously severely needed. On point three, could you just give us a couple of examples? I, th I think I understand what you're talking about is kind of taking taking money in tax, but redistributing it out to people via subsidies and tax breaks. Could you could you put them flesh on that for us? For the, sure. For the so there are yeah. there are many examples, right? So if you're a family, uh, we're going to give you certain credits if you have children or if you have disabilities or if you are a veteran, yeah. all legitimate good things. We're saying, hey, you're a veteran, you're going to get a certain credit, a certain tax break. That's great. Uh, but as an individual, you still earned a certain amount of money. So, you know, we could have a, a simpler system. So that's like one kind of very simple kind of credit. The second is if you have a business the way that a lot of businesses get uh, reported on is through the individual system. If you have what's, if you have a, a oh, wow. single member LLC, kind of this, you know, what you might commonly have if you're a graphic designer or you sell goods or you have um, provide, maybe you're a tutor, you know, you, even if you drive for Uber, you might have this small business, what's called a small business, but that's all going to get reflected on your personal return. Well, because it's a business, you got to, you, you have the opportunity to deduct expenses. And some of these things are straightforward, which is like, okay, I spent a thousand dollars on food. I didn't make that money. I had to pay for a client. You know, that's kind of gets netted against the business's expenses, what revenue you see, but some things are more nuanced. If you're a certain kind of business, there may be a certain credit or deduction available to you. If you work in your home office, there may be a certain credit or deduction available to you. And that may uh, tail off at a certain income level. Right. And so that also creates more complexity is that these things are not necessarily uniform. There's a lot of rules and, and math and how they get applied to the system and they change year over year. And then the third, I would say, is more complex things, but that would be like capital gains. Right. We don't treat all stock sales the same. You could have short term, you could have long term. Some uh, municipal bonds are tax exempt in some cases from uh, from from paying tax on the interest earn. So there's lots of cases and treatment to these things. And those are kind of like the three different buckets, I'd say that roll up to make this a little bit more than just kind of a very simple equation in that in that, in that sense, which is what you have in, in systems in other parts of the world. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And presumably, certain things change as you go through life, right? For example, you can, you can some people if they earn under a certain threshold can get tax credit, uh, sorry, child credit and stuff like that in the UK. So which should obviously go away as your children get older, la 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 la. So all those sort of sort of things. Homeowners, presumably as well, can get some sort of. You can get mortgage interest deductions, but again, it depends on how much 
you know, that tails off also based on how big your mortgage is. It depends, you have to be itemizing your expenses for that to kick in. So there's all these dependencies. It's not necessarily just straightforward. It's like, if this, then this, then some other thing. And so the, the software to be able to build that and deal with the year over year changeover becomes a very significant task. Okay, that, that's a, a nice segue into kind of personal finance management because it's something that has been tackled before, right? And never really kind of got it to work for everyone. What's April doing differently to its competitors to kind of make, make this work for every, I think you said 130 million Americans and 32 million businesses. 170 million plus minus US taxpayers and 32 million small businesses. Yeah, I think I think you said it exactly right. The, the system we have today is legacy providers where you're either you know, filing uh, your taxes with an accounting uh, professional, you come in once a year um, and you're gonna drop off your documents and they're gonna give you back a form and you kind of hope it's correct or you're gonna go on to one of the providers, uh, you know, like a TurboTax uh, or or similar product. That's kind of the big behemoth uh, business that we have here in the U.S. And you're going to file online, and they're going to charge you a lot of money. And what's going to happen is that as you need more forms, you're going to keep having to pay more more money for it. And what you have is this kind of siloed, uh, as I said, sort of historical process that's segregated from the rest of your financial life. And so you've got to do, you've got to work really, really, really hard and pay a whole bunch of money at the end to just be compliant. And I think what we're saying at April is what if we had you pay the same or less money, work not as hard, but actually did this exercise inside of an app that you already know, use, and like, in which case we can already get data that we already have, that that platform already has on you. And I can streamline the filing process. We can accelerate the reporting of income or interest or or just information about your household uh the second is we can personalize that experience so instead of upselling you and oh you need this form for this credit or that form for capital gains we can just give you the best possible experience tailored to you based on your specific circumstance we can do that because we're built on a modern technology we have a modern tax platform that allows us allows us to create a custom interview for each taxpayer and the third is we can build this in 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 a continuous manner and so what you have in tax is it's either the largest expense that a household has throughout the year, $16,000, $17,000, or it's the largest single paycheck you get back from the government, $2,500 to $3,000, depending on the year, about $300 billion remitted in the form of tax refunds. So this is either an expense that is creating agony, or it's an amount of money that you are waiting for and depending on to fund your life and your children's life and your household's life, and that's creating anxiety. And so what you have is a lot of anxious people <laughs> that have to work really hard just to kind of figure out what their circumstance is. And by making tax year round, by allowing someone to track their taxes and affect their outcome during the fiscal year, right? That's a major issue. When you go to file your taxes, the fiscal year is over. You can't sell a stock. You can't change your withholding. That thing's already happened. So we've got to empower people inside of apps that they use in order to take control, have visibility, and be able to actually have a better financial outcome. And that's April's mission is to help Americans have better financial outcomes through tax. Um, it's not just to have a better tax filing experience. With that, so as a very simple example, you're coming up to year end, instead of going over that year end and going, oh shit, I should have, you know, sold this stock to at a loss to offset my tax liability. I didn't do it. April would be in a position to say, actually, Ben, you might want to think about this as a strategy because of this. 
Yeah, or I'll give you another example. So we have a partnership with Gusto uh, Payroll Company here in the U.S. They already have year-to-date pay for the people that are paid on their platform. And by pumping that data into our system, we can basically provide a dynamic estimate. Now, some users are going to be are going to have a refund and they may want to get that money now because interest rates are high and they may say, why do I want to wait, take on debt? Maybe I should adjust my paycheck, my, my tax withholding, so I can get some of that money earlier that I'm going to get back anyway. Or someone might owe money and then they're like, wait a minute, I'm going to owe $2,000. I didn't realize that. I better start putting money away mm-hmm. or I better start withholding more money out of my paycheck. The next step after that is starting to see there are specific strategies around tax uh, or around mortgage. But the first step is just providing someone the visibility to like, well, okay, if I sell $3,000 in capital gains, what's going to happen to my tax position? Am I going to actually owe money? Wait, I don't, I don't actually have that money on hand. Maybe I don't want to sell this stock. So it's actually being able to help someone have the power of that information before they make the financial decision to transact. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I understand. And you're, and the way this is delivered is by embedding it into existing businesses that have some of that information. You mentioned Gusto, any others? Yeah. So we work with a uh, you know, variety of payroll companies, banking providers, savings investment companies. And the way that we show up you know, might be a little bit different inside of those different platforms, depending on what is the data they have, what is the value proposition that you can deliver uniquely inside of that application or inside of that environment. So payroll obviously has payroll data. Um, if you're working with someone maybe that has a, uh, a bank account, they might be able to like advance you some of that money that you're going to get in that return because you don't always get it right away. And so for us, it's all about aligning the interests with the provider that we're uh, working with. And that's where you can really create something that's net new in market. Because now it's not just that someone's getting a better, cheaper, faster tax return. That's important. And that I think intuitively makes sense that we need to upgrade the systems that that are available to Americans. But what we're really aiming for is for a new type of financial service, a new kind of of capability to be in the hands of these people. And I guess by just focusing, it's not a narrow focus, but for the purpose of this point I'm about to make, it's relatively narrow in scope. You're able to what I mean by that is you're not having to look after the front end systems as well, which is also a huge job for each for each user. You're able to keep up with the changes in the tax system and deliver like best in class systems into other people's software, right? Partially. We do actually provide the user interface. Uh, when we built a very specific system that we call the April OS, the April operating system, that allows us to dynamically render the UI specifically because of what you said, it's a major challenge, the way that uh, legacy systems have been built, where they have to update all the code and they have to go and update the UI. So our UI is actually dynamically rendered in our system. And that saves us a lot of time and creates a far more consistency in the user experience than is traditionally done in, in market. It's also what powers the personalization. But this is some of the iterations we went through in building the software is like, if you were to build what I think you're getting at is kind of like an API only solution, there would be many, many, many data points that a, a partner would basically have to build that entire front end. And, you know, maybe it's something we'll consider in the future, but I think that's quite a significant undertaking and also has probably some regulatory complexity baked into that as well. Okay. It, understood. And again, that's kind of a nice way into the next question, which is about kind of the future for April. So what does the next three years look like 
for you guys? Is it kind of stick stick out the challenge and improve the product, or are you at the stage where you, you're going to go and charge overseas and help help some consumers here in Europe? I think we're very focused uh, on the U.S. taxpayer, you know, that uses mainstream financial services here in the U.S. across payroll, credit, investing, and so on. And what we're doing is expanding our tax coverage. So this year we're expanding uh, to have national coverage and we'll also be expanding the types of use cases that we can support because there's many different kinds of tax use cases here in the US and we'll be extending our year-round services to include more abilities to estimate and optimize someone's taxes and bringing that suite to be embedded in more places and be able to serve a wider array of taxpayers and you know, keeping an eye on the foreign market the world is more global than than ever and so there's lots of interesting ways that april i think can and may expand over over time but for the foreseeable future we're we're laser focused on our on our mission and and sort of task at hand here i wonder what the um kind of the volumes are of americans overseas in, ter in terms of re you know uh claiming back overseas tax on their behalf probably quite a large opportunity i don't know yeah, it's gone. It's gone. My guess is it keeps going up as the world has gotten more global over the last two, two, two decades, right? I think the challenge with it is, is that you know, we have a system that's highly automated, it's highly digital, and it's built to work in digital environments. When you start to get into foreign tax situations, first of all, you've got to deal with each jurisdiction. So now you've got to deal with UK or Brazil or yeah, yeah. Israel or Canada and Mexico, and you've got to understand those. So you've kind of got to go country by country. So you've got to actually get enough users that are in that corridor for it to be relevant. And then there's often a lot of human judgment aspects of like, does this qualify and so on. So it, it, many of those things probably still will require a human judgment, which I think is a great place for accountants and, and others to provide more high value add services as you know, there are individuals that have these complex needs and require a human to assess something and, and make a judgment call. Cool. Okay. I'd like to, uh, to kind of, speak a little bit about kind of your and we spoke we touched on it earlier just around you've kind of worked on the investment side and also on the founder side and just to see kind of maybe maybe dive into a little bit around kind of the investor side that's helped you on on your founder's journey yeah look it's been it, it it's it's imperative and and i think it maybe makes me a little bit of a better founder i think the the biggest thing is i got to see many businesses at once so I got to see a portfolio of companies. I got to see many founders in many different environments at various different stages. And so I could see, okay, this founding team ran into a scale problem here because they didn't do this two steps earlier. This thing didn't work out, not because the idea was bad, because the founding team didn't get along. This thing that we thought you know, was gonna be a huge success, market turned out to be much smaller or we were way too early. So you got to see a lot of these things, which I think helped me in a lot of the selection processes of like, what was I going to work on? Really big market, very large idea, technological paradigm shift with AI, making sure that I had a fantastic co-founder with a gentleman named Daniel, who is the CTO of Waze and a fantastic technologist and also a mensch. And so I think it helped me in a lot of these structural elements, um, but it also does help you. A big part of this game is fundraising and being able to attract capital. And it does help to understand the other side and, and how is the other side evaluating the business what are the things that they're looking at? Where should the business be today versus other companies at the stage? And where should it be given it's this very particular business? And I think that that's one of the most powerful things is there's so much generic 
and I, I always say this to people, and I think people are always surprised when I say it, but for an industry which is so historically predicated on outlier, non-consensus ideas, the industry tends to operate a lot on a herd mentality or kind of like a <laughs> current thing mentality. I think everybody knows this, but it's like, it's kind of like fighting that that intuition, right? I always saw that when I when I started investing in public markets at a young age, and I would pick up on a hot theme, and I'd be like, oh, let me invest in that. That's what's hot. And then I realized I'd that's not what was making a return or the market didn't behave the way And I realized like to actually get a return, I had to think a few steps ahead. I had to think differently than what the rest of the market was thinking. I had to take a risk and a chance. And so I think it helped me better understand where should I be taking those risks and chances, technological risk, execution risk, market risk. Um, and then what is the right way to build into the business and de-risk it and create something that's very robust and scalable over time. So, you know, I don't know, everyone's on their journey. I can't tell you like, I have the perfect answer to everything, but I think it does help. And, it, and it's also helped me filter, I think, for the types of capital partners that I want to work with. Okay. And, and what about kind of stage of business and what to focus on? Because I think there's also generic advice that's non-applicable to businesses in certain stages. Is there is there anything that you kind of picked up or, around? I, yeah, I think this is, I think this is the, here, here's like a classic example for the last two years, right? In 2020, 2021, it was grow at all costs. Nobody cared if that was good revenue, if it was profitable revenue, it was just capital's cheap. Go for it. And that turned out not to work out super well for most people. And then we got advice, you know, from the industry in the last year is like, be profitable. And it's like, okay, but if you're a venture backed company and you're doing tens of millions, even tens of millions of dollars of revenue, but your growth is stalling and you're like a little bit profitable, that also doesn't really net out to be that great of a situation either. Or I don't think really attracts more capital. So I think the secret is that you've got to really be able to go to first principles and examine the specific business you're in, because every venture backed business is trying to get to a situation where they can go into hyperscale. That is the way these models work. That is the only outcome for these businesses that work. And so then the question becomes, how do you get there? And so then you have to work backwards from there of what are the things that need to be true in order for me to do that? And what do I need to know about the business or the market in order to verify that I can go do those things? And I think that that is just, I think every market and every business requires something else. Sometimes the right thing to do is going to be like, I don't, maybe will anybody pay for this? Or can we, you know, can we charge for this? And so you've got to get to market really, really quickly. In our case with tax filing, it's kind of like a known industry. There's a multi-billion dollar market for it. So we weren't really so worried about like, do consumers need to file their taxes? It was more like, will they file them with a financial provider? Can we achieve technical feasibility and build this thing? And so I think I think that's where as an entrepreneur, you've got to have a real filter and kind of make sure you're surrounding yourself with the right people and also know who to listen to in the right places about what to focus on. I think there's, um, and this is my own view, that there's kind of big differences in size of business in specific industries. What I mean by that is in purely software industry where it's, you know, not regulated, you get these strange dynamics where one firm dominates the market or eventually dominates the market. And two is, you know, a third of the size and everyone else is back in the stalls. And there's some kind of sideways look at an adjacent market that is heavily regulated, potentially fintech. And the, 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 the rules of one market are projected into a different market and they do not apply, i.e. in heavily regulated, my observation in heavily, heavily regulated industries is it seems to be less winner takes all, 
dynamics across the industry and more diversity of firms. I don't know what you think about my. Uh, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. I think in in principle, and I think the data supports it. It's like, is there going to be this super app that just eats all the banks or eats all the insurance companies or eats? And, and it just seems like after a decade or so of of you know kind of throttling with different ideas, it just seems like the answer is probably not. There'll be some companies that get very big. Some companies may may decrease. Some may fail to get scale. But I think because you've got states and you've got international angles and you have different parts of the market that need such different things. If you look at the very highest yeah. end of the market versus the lowest end of the market, things are wildly different. The regulatory requirements are different. The, the needs are different. So it's, I think this whole notion of a winner take all like probably just doesn't even make sense. Like you wouldn't have, and, and I think by the way, some of this we saw play out. Like if you look at what happened with Marcus and Goldman Sachs, which again, I wouldn't say is a monopoly by any means, but is like one of the preeminent to serve the most wealthy Americans, most wealthy global individuals, like didn't really work out to go into, profitably go into, you know, retail. And I don't think that's because they're not smart people like Goldman. I'm sure they're very smart people there. I just think it's, it's hard to be in these multiple streams at the, at the same time. Okay, I think I think that's it for, for my um, question list. I don't know if there's anything else we can chop this up. If there's anything else that we haven't covered, but I don't want to. I know Hassan said 1.5 hours. I hope I've kept it relatively relatively uh, prudent for you. But I think we've covered everything that I wanted to do from here. That's that's good. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for having me.